Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Chorley. A, a packed, packed mixed bag of a show today. We spoke to Lindsay Hoyle, the common speaker, who talked about how he thought that Boris Johnson was a bit presidential in his attitude to Parliament. Uh, he also insisted that the Commons would not be moving out of London and revealed he's brought his own cat in to deal with the mice problem in Parliament. We spoke to Paul Smith, the lead singer of Maximo Park, about what he would do if he ruled the world. Tory MP and Brexit hardman Steve Baker on why he likes to throw himself out of aeroplanes. But I think the most interesting debate we had was about those red wall seats in the north of England, which turned blue at the general election, and we tried to assess exactly how Boris Johnson might be able to hold on to them or could Keir Starmer take them back. Now, though, we're going to talk about... You remember we, there was a time when all we talked about in politics was the red wall, those seats in northern England and the Midlands, traditionally held by Labour for generations, uh, which turned blue, voted Tory in the general election last year, having previously voted for Brexit in uh, many cases. Uh, Boris Johnson has has tried in the last uh, week or so to return to his levelling up agenda uh, to try and uh, improve um, life in those uh, seats, which um, he argues has been neglected for, for many years by successive governments. And uh, the flip side of that is lots of his new Conservative MPs are not shy about making their demands of the government and uh, not always doing uh, what the party whips wants. But with the coronavirus crisis likely to leave uh, those poor communities even worse off, where do the allegiances of the Red Wall seats lie now? Is there a way back for Labour, uh, or have they now turned true blue? Joining me are three people who know the politics of the area inside out. Steve Rayson is the author of a new book, The Fall of the Red Wall. The Labour Party no longer represents people like us, which is out today. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. Uh, Peter Kellner is a pollster and former president of YouGov. Morning, Peter. Morning, Matt. And uh, Caroline Flint, former MP, Labour, former Labour MP for Don Valley, who lost a seat in 2019. Morning, Caroline. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to have you all on uh, Times Radio. So let's start with you, Steve, because your book, uh, Fall of the Red Wall, is out today. What is it that you uh, have found was the cause of those extraordinary results where seats which have perhaps never voted uh, Conservative before did and did so in quite large numbers? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think yeah, what interested me from the start was the scale of that change. I mean, so in my book, I look at 41 specific constituencies, long-held Labour constituencies, really voted Conservative, and the scale of change was very significant. We've got the highest ever recorded swings from Labour to Conservatives, despite the previous election being just two years before. And in constituencies that are never voted Conservative, they returned large Tory majorities in cases such as Dudley North, over 30%, in Grimsby, over 20%. It's really difficult to understate the scale of that change. So I was keen to explore what caused it. Why was there such rapid change in 2019? And really explanations such as Brexit or Corbyn fail to address the processes of social change. They're they're a bit too simple. And academics who study this area really point to the 
the importance of something called concealed preferences, where, you know, people don't want to be social outliers, they want to fit in. Um, so if you're in a group where there's strong hostility to the Tories, you might conceal your preference for the Conservatives. And it's difficult to know the scale of those concealed preferences, because by their nature, they're concealed. Um, but what we can say is where you get high levels of concealed preferences, you get the potential for very rapid social change. Because if those preferences are revealed, they may not be, but if they are, you don't need to persuade people to a new view. They're already there. And the existing norm will collapse rapidly. And I think that's the process that explains what happens in Red Wall seats. It was really a long-term process, which was then accelerated by a number of specific events, not least Corbyn and Brexit, which we can discuss. But really, there were long-term trends which were moving people away from Labour. But people were, for social reasons, concealing preferences. And suddenly, there are a number of events gave them the confidence to then reveal their preferences. And once that happens, you've got a cascade and you've got, it's like a dam bursting. You then got a, a mass of people switching their votes to the Conservatives. Is it the case that rather than you said, rather than if everyone was sort of diehard Labour supporters uh, on the day before the election, they switched to the Tories the next day. Is it, it's a sort of, it's a, Various things happened to sort of loosen those bonds that actually uh, there was the, obviously the Brexit vote in 2016. Theresa May, for, you know, actually in, in a lot of areas did um, make some progress in these seats. Uh, but, uh, you know, you, if, you're, if you come second, nobody really talks about it quite as much. Um, and so it was sort of it was all about sort of loosening those bonds. But what was yeah. it about Boris Johnson and the pitch that he was making that, that sort of finally broke them, do you think? I don't think it was just Johnson. I, mean, I think you're right to say these were long-term trends. I mean, we had economic trends with industrialization, declining number of traditional workers. We have a lot of demographic change in these constituencies. I mean, they were aging, younger people moving out. I mean, in seats like Grimsby, the percentage of over 65s increased by over 40%. Uh, so you've got change taking place in these constituencies and you've got um, increasing detachment from labor, not economically, where views are often quite aligned, but you were getting differences culturally. Um, and these were exemplified by Corbyn and Brexit. So, I mean, I think Labour was detaching. I mean, Johnson followed the same strategy as May, who was incredibly successful in 17. And Labour really didn't heed the warning signs in 17. We had the highest ever levels of Labour to Conservative switching in 17 in these seats. But really, I think it was more of a disillusionment with Labour than a love for the Conservatives. So if there's any uh, joy for Labour in this, it's that it was really that disillusionment with Labour and the cultural differences exemplified by Corbyn and Brexit, which I'm sure we can discuss, um, rather than a big love for the Conservatives. So if there's any silver lining for Labour, I think that's it. But let's be very clear, there's a big cultural disconnect between these voters and Labour, and this has been taking place for 20 years or more. This is not something that's very new. It was just that people were concealing preferences because of social pressures. I mean, in focus group after focus group, people were saying, you know, my family will disown me if I vote Conservative. And then gradually that fell away, and it particularly fell away in 2019. Caroline Flint, you've uh, been a Labour minister and uh, frontbencher uh, for many years. You lost your seat in um, 2019. Sorry, I feel like I'm sort of intruding on <laughs> raking it all up again. I apologise. <laughs> but do, does what Steve is saying sort of all ring true with your experience in Don Valley? Yeah, it does chime. And, and um, I mean, I do agree with Steve. I think some of this disconnect... Uh, started before um, 2015. But I think what was really significant, um, or one of the factors that was significant between the 2017 general election and 2019, look, in 2017, you know, Jeremy Corbyn came up on the doorstep a lot then uh, for a whole number of reasons. They, 
you know, he wasn't the sort of Labour person they identified with. He wasn't patriotic enough. Uh, while some of the economic policies were popular, like nationalising the railways, uh, there was so much more about um, Jeremy uh, that they were worried about. They couldn't see him as Prime Minister. But what helped in 2017 was obviously Theresa May ran a disastrous uh, a general election campaign, but also that Labour was very clear that it was promising to respect the outcome of the referendum. You know, our first leaflet in that campaign, national leaflet that we all distributed, uh, it basically said the, uh, the British people have decided uh, the matter is settled, we're leaving the European Union. I think, you know, when it became clear under Jeremy's leadership, and he could have stopped it at any time, uh, that we moved towards backing a second referendum. That was, if you like, um, uh, you know, a major impact on people's sense of trust in the Labour Party. It was like, that's it. Um, you, you've given us permission to turn away now and move to the Tories. Uh, let's bring Peter Cowan in here then. Uh, because, Peter, one of the things that you've been uh doing was you wrote, you wrote a piece for the new european last week looking at what might be happening in those seats now um and suggesting that the polling suggests that labor might be coming back in those seats just explain what how you how you sort of come about that what i did matt was um take four weeks worth of the opinion weekly polls for the observer and they poll 2,000 people a week. So over four weeks, you've got 8,000. Now, that's a big enough number that you can start looking at subgroups with some confidence. And essentially, what I found is in those seats that the Conservatives gained from Labour last December, overwhelmingly red wall seats, um, the swing back to Labour has been almost twice as much as in the country as a whole. And what the polls showed more broadly was the seats that swung heavily to the Conservatives last December, are swinging most heavily back. The seats that swung least last December have swung least back. So you're seeing a sort of unwinding to some extent of the effect of last December's election. So in those red wall seats, um, and, and, and as Caroline said, you know, one of the factors clearly last December, it's only part of it, was the Jeremy Corbyn. Well, Jeremy Corbyn's gone. So in as far as Corbyn was part of the problem, that problem has gone. So we shouldn't be altogether surprised there's been a bigger swing back to Labour in the red wall seats than in other seats. Uh, Caroline, you'd uh, spoken before about uh, how the senior figures in the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn had had put the pursuit of Remain at the expense of working-class uh, heartlands which had voted for Brexit, and, and you singled out Keir Starmer in particular. Or, you know, if anything, he's a sort of even more out-and-out -out enthusiast for the EU and, and Remain than uh, Jeremy Corbyn was. So how, how do you think Keir Starmer's going down in your old seat? Well, to echo a little bit of what Peter's just said, is that uh, first and foremost, you know, um, it's a change of leader that is, is also making a difference for Labour. And actually, in that sense, uh, in contrast to Jeremy Corbyn, Keir is someone people can imagine as being a prime minister. Um, uh, I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, I think, was going to be, if we, you know, hadn't lost the red wall seats, um, was going to continue to be a problem for Labour. So I think, you know, Keir, in that sense, is part of the antidote, uh, but it's only part of uh, the answer for Labour. I mean, you know, there has to be an understanding that we need to reconnect with, you know, this Labour base that has been so important. And the advantage for uh, Keir is that he has time on his side, he's time to reset people's attitudes to Labour. Um, Brexit um, is, in some senses, past. 
who'd have thought, um, you know, that six months after the general election campaign of 2019, that wouldn't be the issue we'd be discussing today. We're talking about, obviously, Labour, but we're also in 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 a pandemic, and that has superseded all of that. So there is an opportunity here, again, for Labour and Keir Starmer to reset the story, to relook at ways in which we can uh, create a narrative around a future that entails everything to do with coronavirus and coming out of that, whether that's socially or on the economy. So there are opportunities here, uh, even for people like here, who obviously were very much part of um, the group think inside the Parliamentary Labour Party front bench and back bench uh, that seem to think that actually uh, pursuing a second referendum campaign wouldn't have the dire outcome it did for the Red Wall seat. Come on, if you'd been uh, living in Don Valley but not been the MP and the candidate, would you have voted Labour in December? If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, I've been in the Labour Party 40 years and 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 therefore, you know, I would have voted um, Labour because that's part of who I am. But what I've always been mindful of, uh, Matt, is that whilst I joined, if you like, the Labour Party, um, you know, 40 years ago and carried on through many different leaders and, and, and pretty much half my time in opposition uh, over in that time, more than half the time, I have to say. The truth is I've always gone back to my own family and the people that I represent who will always say to me that, you know, they've been Labour all their lives, but they've never actually joined the Labour Party. Um, it has been a social uh, attachment as much as anything else. Um, and I hope that, you know, in all the years involved in politics, I've always made sure that I've understood that people who join political parties are a different type of person to those who don't <laughs> but vote. Um, and, I, and I just think, you know, uh, too often in political parties and, and Labour's in danger of this, we end up talking to ourselves. And part of the problem was, is that we're very good at talking to our membership, which is overwhelmingly socially liberal, whereas only something like 21% of the electorate define themselves as that. And, and therein lies the problem. Are we really listening to people? And certainly, you know, in places like Don Valley and Doncaster and the other Red Wall seats, um, clearly there has been a disconnect. And, you know, interestingly, you know, obviously we're talking today about the Red Wall seats that we lost. But if you look at all those other seats that we won, Ed Miliband's in Doncaster North, Yvette Cooper's in Pontefract, elsewhere, their majorities have tumbled to a couple of thousand or, or, or fewer votes. So this is a much bigger issue than just the Red Wall seats we've lost. It's a bigger issue about those seats across the North and the Midlands for whom MPs have relied on for generations to just return a Labour MP with huge majorities. So uh, 
Thanks, Dan Caroline. You're listening to Times Radio. I'm joined by Caroline Flint, former uh, Labour MP, Peter Kellner, the pollster, and Steve Wason, whose new book, The Fall of the Red Wall, it is out today. Um, up next, I want to talk about how Boris Johnson might shore up the Tory party. We'll talk about that in just a sec. Times Radio. I'm John Pienaar. Join me every Monday to Thursday from four on Times Radio. We're going to be talking about the news. We're going to be talking to people who make the news. And we're going to be discussing it and explaining it. Join John Pienaar for the Drive Time Show dedicated to the news that matters and the views that need to be heard. We're going to be having conversation as well as a bit of confrontation from time to time. Quality journalism, analysis and opinion that speaks for itself. John Pienaar at Drive. This afternoon from four. On Times Radio. Times Radio with Matt Chorley. So we talked about those red wall seats that the Tory party turned blue at the general election uh, in December. Uh, and as we come up to Boris Johnson's first year as Prime Minister, what does he need to do to, to sort of shore them up and uh, make sure that they don't go go red again? Steve Wayson, author of the new book, uh, The Fall of the Red Wall. If Boris Johnson picked up the phone to you and said... Well, you've dug around in this, you've looked at all the numbers and the issues and what might have been the driving force. How does he ensure this wasn't just a blip? Uh, what what are those voters expecting from the, the, the Tory government they took a gamble on in December? Yeah, and no, I think it's an important point. And, and to start to remember, a lot of these people voted Tory with a heavy heart. I mean, there wasn't masses of enthusiasm for the Tories in these votes, albeit demographically, culturally, they're aligned. So I think they're going to look for a lot of reassurance from Brighton, uh, from Johnson that things will make a difference. I mean, what they're looking for, a lot of the vote was a cry of desperation in some cases. We want things to change. We feel that our communities have got boarded up high streets, we've got social uh, problems, etc. They're looking for a change. So they're going to look for visible change. And I think the problem for Johnson is going to be the pandemic crisis is probably going to make that worse in those constituencies. And I think Caroline's right. This The pandemic provides an opportunity for Labour to craft a new Labour narrative. I mean, historically, they've had problems in terms of uh, an economic narrative, certainly in terms of economic competence. And in some ways, if they're going to challenge Johnson, they're going to need to develop a new narrative around their economic vision and around that one of competence, which to be fair, they could use Keir Starmer. He's run a big organisation. You can create a narrative of competence around Starmer in a different way. So the pandemic, though, I think provides a real opportunity because suddenly there's almost agreement between the parties on some of the economics in terms of the spending, in terms of government intervention. And the, the traditional conservative approach of tax and government is something which is deeply negative. It goes back to death and taxes and all of that. It's a very negative, deep story. But with the pandemic, there's an opportunity for a new story, really, for Labour, which is you know, tax is something that communities use to smooth the path through turbulent times. And so Labour got to work on that new narrative, but particularly they've got to work on a narrative of competence. But for Johnson, he's got to show real change in those constituencies. This was a cry for change, in my view, in a lot of these constituencies. And that's one of his biggest challenges. Uh, Peter Kellner, what, what does Labour do if the Tories become a high-spending, NHS-loving party of the north just pointing at the Tories and saying oh the Tories are awful aren't they which has been the strategy of, of successive Labour leaders without huge success at the uh, at the ballot box that's just not going to work is it if the Tories are outflanking them on, the, on what the Labour Party likes to think are their issues normally I'd make two points, Matt. The, the, the first is that, as we've seen from the coronavirus, there's always opportunities for an opposition to attack the specific elements of a policy, even if the overall character of the policy has cross-party support. Competence and delivery matter, and um, it sound, looks to me, from the evidence of the last four months, as if uh, the Conservatives will be open over the next 
four years to criticisms of competence, even if they become a high spending party. But the second point, I, I, if I may, Matt, is, is this. You know, Brexit was clearly an element of what happened last December in the Red Wall seat. So I agree with Steve. It's only one element. It's not the whole story. Um, but we do know that the seats that Labour lost were overwhelmingly pro Brexit seats. But all the economic analysis says these are the places that are going to be hit hardest, especially if we leave without a deal at the end of December, leave the transitional uh, period. And, you know, voters are ungrateful, are ungrateful lot. If you do what <laughs> they say you, they want you to do and it doesn't work, they don't say, oh, that's fine. We supported it. We'll support you. No, they say if you don't deliver you're out. And I think the Conservatives' big problem is that uh, in, in six months, a year, a year and a half's time, if Brexit has caused more problems in these red wall seats, uh, Johnson will have a great deal of difficulty holding on to them. Is that your your characteristic, uh, your characterisation of it as well, Caroline? That the no, my advice to Peter and anybody listening to him: um, stop talking about that you know you're going to be worse off with Brexit because to be honest um, that was pushed for the last two years um, people suffered a global financial crash that uh, fundamentally under, under um, uh, you know underpinned their economic prospects which went down but also the state of their wages and everything else and that's why we're in the European Union and look I, I think that um, actually what's more important is recognising the impact of the coronavirus on uh, people's way of life, but also just how we do work and how we create wealth in the future. Um, and that is a huge task. We are dealing with um, a, a Conservative government um, that the, the, the sort of narrative that Labour usually has with it, these horrible mean Tories, they never want to spend any money on anything, has, has gone right out the window. They will be throwing everything, including the kitchen sink, uh, at whatever they can do, and state intervention on on a level that we haven't seen for for generations. So, for Labour, um, they need to be thinking about well, how do we rebuild the economy? And to be honest, part of the problem in terms of the support amongst Labour communities and Labour voters in red wall seats for um, leaving the European Union is that they didn't feel they were getting much benefit out of the European Union in the way that Peter and others describe. They didn't feel they had access to all the plum jobs that were there in our cities. They didn't feel that they were being retrained uh, for new jobs. They did feel that in some of their factories and areas that actually employers were using access to freedom of uh, free movement to get workers in from other parts of Eastern Europe uh, to come into the UK. Um, so they didn't feel better off. And so we need uh, to shape a new conversation. And actually, this is an opportunity for Keir uh, to um, basically reset how people think about him in relation to Brexit. He has said quite clearly um, that that decision is made with leaving the European Union. And if I was prime minister, I wouldn't be campaigning to go back in. Uh, good. I'm glad he said that. Uh, but also, I think the Labour Party have to be careful because... Your top question was about what will Boris Johnson do? They will be spending money. They will be looking to those areas in the North and the Midlands to shore up their vote. But also Labour has, in some respects, underestimated Boris Johnson time and time again. They underestimated him last year when he went and got a deal uh, to bring back to the House of Commons. So, you know, in a game of chess, they need to outthink uh, what their main opposition is going to do next. And they shouldn't underestimate the 
the ability of Boris Johnson and the Tories to do whatever they need to do to win the next general election. I suppose, um, just following on the point you're making, Caroline, they actually... Uh, people who who voted for Boris Johnson, or, or, they didn't do it because they voted for Brexit. It's because of the same underlying reasons that caused them to vote yeah. for Brexit. Is why they thought that Boris Johnson that might then offer him the might offer the the change that they were looking for. It's not a sort of exactly. straightforward. You know, we're on those those things. Just given how Keir Starmer has done so far, I mean, my 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 sort of slight characterization would be, you know, he's clearly you know, better performer at the dispatch box, uh, you know, more considered. He looks like a prime minister and people seem to agree with that in the polls. There's not been a huge amount, apart from um, uh, dealing with people on his own front bench, perhaps, there's mm. not been a huge amount of bravery and sort of striking out and uh, and uh, make it, you know, taking a stance on anything particularly. It's it's tended to be on the more, like you were saying, sort of technical or, well, you know, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have done it like that. Um, uh, do you think, do you think he needs to be braver? Um. Well, I think he is going to have to, um, uh, you know, as we particularly as we hopefully come out of the, this crisis from lockdown into not necessarily the same um, way of uh, life, but um, uh, one in which we can look more to the future rather than just dealing with the present. He will have to be brave. But part of that bravery is partly deciding, you know, which course is he going to take? Is he going to take one that in some ways says that I'm different, but I'm, I'm keeping uh, a number of policies that were developed under Jeremy Corbyn? Or is he going to take the opportunity, which I think he should do, is to reset um, uh, public's attitudes to Labour. And part of that is about, I, I think, looking at how a post-pandemic economy uh, should look, in which I think there's plenty of space uh, for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party uh, to make progress. But first of all, they have to earn the right to be heard. The problem is, as well, is that I think it's, it's very difficult uh, for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party to be heard at the moment because we're in the middle of this crisis. Yeah, of and he did indicate, which I think was the right course, that whilst he will forensically um, question the government and, and hold them to account, he's not going out of his way just, just to be oppositional for the sake of it because I think the public, you know, um, Labour voters, Conservative voters, but across the piece will feel like, hang on, we're in the middle of a crisis here. What we don't need is just you know, point scoring um, and throwing stones. So he's in a difficult situation at the moment, I think, to be heard. But there will be opportunities. But this is the time where, with his front bench and his advisers, um, who he listens to, is to really think about, well, what can we do to uh, regain people's trust? And don't forget that, and I'm sure you're not, Matt. <laughs> I'd <is> never. A, <laughs> it's, it's one thing, it's one thing um, to climb that mountain to regain red wall seats. But we also need to take off seats off the Conservatives. Yeah, that doesn't get you actually much marginal. closer to it. Yeah, exactly. So we've got one mountain. It's like a mountain range. We've got to get over one, the Himalayas. We've got to get over one mountain. And once we've done that, we've got another mountain to climb as well. But that's where uh, I think really thinking about um, how he resets attitudes to Labour is, is going to be important. And reset um, our narrative on, on what and climb the mountain. My huge thanks to Caroline Flint, Peter Kellner and Steve Rayson for talking us through those red wall seats in the north of England. Uh, with a midday update is up next on Times Radio. That's all we've got time for on this episode. To listen to the whole Times Radio show, just go to the Times Radio app and click listen again. To make sure you don't miss future episodes of the podcast, subscribe on Apple, Acast, Spotify or wherever you listen. And to read more about what we've been talking about on the podcast, go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Radio to subscribe. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly, it's goodbye.